So if you were back, if you were here in January at the high school, um, you may have seen John came and preached for us one other time. John and I shared an office at Cross Point. Um, I, I can think of few people who have sharpened me in the Lord uh, other more than he has. And so I'm super grateful for uh, the opportunity to sit under his teaching once again and uh, because I know it will be centered in the word. Well, good morning. Hello, those of you who are on Zoom. Um, I'm going to do something real quick because like everybody who does video chats, it's really tempting to, for some reason, look at the screen that has you on it. So I'm just going to hide myself for you. Hello, I'm waving. Um, I've never actually preached with a computer in front of me. So uh, if, I, if I seem a little awkward here in the beginning, please forgive me. If you do have a Bible with you, please get to Mark 14. We're going to be in Mark 14. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. Um, and before we jump in to the text, I would like to just say a few things. Um, the first is simply this. As Eric has said, uh, our family has been called by the Lord to move to Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, we are joining a church family out there called Portico Church. They are investing incredibly in our family, doing things like paying for my seminary education, paying for our housing costs, as well as giving us access to the entire benefits package that a full-time staff member would have at that church. Um, as Eric has said, we, we, are, we are raising support. We're asking God's people to generously uh, contribute to help us pay for living expenses. This is simply because we believe if, if I'm going to be preparing for f- full-time ministry, I should do that uh, by... Uh, creating good habits, which means not working 60 hours a week, right? Putting in uh, hours towards seminary education, hours at the church, and then hours at some sort of 20-hour-a-week job. And so we are asking that God's people would give generously and, and partner with us in that. Um, however, at the same time, like Eric said, we, um, we would be deeply grieved if someone gave to us out of compulsion, obligation, guilt, or shame. And so I, I just want to encourage you um, if, if you want to give to us joyfully, please do, uh, but, but we also, we desperately need the Lord's people to pray with us. Um, in the booklet that's back there, there's a list of statistics that are absolutely concerning when it comes to pastors and the state of pastors. And if you have paid any attention to any sort of online Christian magazine, blog, publication, whatever, over the the past few years, you can just see that pastors are dropping like flies. And even now in the midst of of coronavirus, there are horrendous statistics of pastors wanting to leave the ministry entirely. And so please pray for us that God would use this time that we're preparing for ministry to, to prepare for a lifetime of faithful fruitful, Christ-centered ministry. Pray for my wife. Um, She's leaving pretty much everything that she's known. She's from Eureka, Illinois, grew up there. Her parents are 10 10 minutes away from us. Her siblings are 10 minutes away from us. All of her life has been in central Illinois, and so please pray for her um, as well as for myself, because in many ways, we're excited to leave, but we're also grieving. We're grieving. Um, there's, There's incredible loss that we're enduring in this season, and so please pray for us in that. I also just wanted to say, um, as, as we think about the text this morning, um, I want you to think about your own life individually, but as Eric has just recently announced um, the opportunity for you guys to begin considering and think about joining this church's members, I really want you to think about applying this text corporately. 
and what it actually looks like to think through this text, not as an individual person, but as one body, as one organism of, 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 of the church dwelling here in the town of Monunk, Illinois. You guys have the privilege and joy of, of being a part of a church that has one of my favorite pastors as its lead pastor. Um, some people, when they think of their favorite pastors, they might think of some popular YouTube preacher or somebody who writes books or somebody who's really well-known or somebody that likes to yell or somebody that paces or somebody that has good cadence. One of my favorite pastors is your pastor. And so I, I, I just, I, I want to encourage you. That's, that, that's one of my favorite families. I'm not ashamed of having favorites. I think Jesus had favorites. Um, he called 12 disciples, not thousands, right, initially. He had that inner circle. Um, Eric has been a part of my inner circle for a long time. And so as you hear me teach this morning, um, I hope you hear your pastor. Because there hasn't been a single person that's invested more time, more energy, and more effort into me than he has. And so I, I'm very much a product of, of your own pastor's ministry before he came here. And so I hope you're encouraged by um, eight years of, of relationship that I've had with him and his family. Um, Eric baptized me. He baptized my wife. He married us. Um, he's, he let me bug him at 2 o'clock in the morning when I had questions about things. He let me come over when I was 18 years old and had no idea how to follow Jesus and stay the night at his house and keep him up, keep him up late when he was preaching the next day. Um, his wife has cared for me, and yet I've learned much more from his life and his wife's life than I have their words. Um, just watching them model what it looks like to make disciples and care for their children, to love one another well, to encourage others well, to invest themselves and integrate themselves in the life of a body, to plant a church. Just watching them live life and do life has been an incredible encouragement to me, and I'm going to miss it. Let's get into the Bible. There is, there is something very, very sweet and unique about the embrace of family. One of the sweetest moments for me, uh, every day, Monday through Friday, those kind of work days, is actually coming home, right? Um, for the longest time, we didn't actually have a house key. It's a long story. But so I would open my garage, and I, I, I would remember I just have fond moments and fond memories consistently opening the garage and hearing, dum 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 across the house. We have a split-level house, and so uh, most of our family kind of resides on the, on the, on the upper level of the house, uh, you know, throughout the day. And so I would open up the garage, and I would hear, dun, 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 and it's my kids running because they hear that dad's home. And I come inside, and I come up the stairs, and again, we have a split level, so I kind of come up the stairs this way, and I turn the corner on the landing in our house right next to the front door, and I see four little eyes staring at me saying, Daddy! Super excited that I'm home. And, and my, my beautiful wife, who's usually busy doing something, exhausted because the kids have just run her dry throughout the day, still has the time and the energy to look me in the face, tell me she loves me, give me a kiss and a hug, um, and ask me how my day was. There is something special about the embrace of family. And if we pay attention, we realize that the family points to something greater. The embrace of family points to something greater, and that is simply this, the joy of God's embrace of us in Christ. This morning, we'll be spending some time looking at the beginning of Mark's account of Christ's passion or suffering. Mark 14 marks the moment where we see opposition and hostility against Jesus hit its climax, 
as the chief priests and the, the scribes begin to make plans to kill the Savior. Three times Jesus has explicitly looked forward to his suffering in Mark's gospel, and now we're here. We're at the moment where Christ's suffering has come. This is the climax of Mark's retelling of Jesus' life and ministry. Opposition against Jesus has hit an all-time high, and the author in this passage foreshadows the impending death that is pressing on Christ as he begins to prepare himself for Calvary. There are often times in my life, and, and this has been very, very uh, recent, especially with everything going on with COVID, but, but I also think there are times in your life where your devotional life is just dry. It's dry. Your, your life in Jesus feels more like a barren wasteland than a flourishing garden of refuge and refreshment. And the difficult thing for many who find themselves in the spiritual doldrums is, is their emotions. Our emotions in the spiritual doldrums make us feel like we do not want to follow Jesus. Amen? You've probably, I mean, have you ever felt emotional like you just don't want to pick up your Bible? You just don't want to follow Jesus. The Bible has nothing valuable to say to you. You feel that way emotionally. Now, now granted, we know the truth. We know that that's not true, but our emotions tell us a different gospel. We don't feel like running to Jesus. And maybe we think that the scriptures have nothing to say regarding this area, or perhaps maybe we're just bored with Christianity. As his own rejection reaches new heights, Jesus is embraced fully and prophetically in this passage. In our passage this morning, we're going to see an unexpected picture of devotion to Jesus fall in the middle of two accounts of his rejection. Mark is preparing his readers for Jesus' arrest and death. And here he models for us what our devotion can resemble in the midst of such hostility. In a world that rejects Jesus, we must embrace him completely. As we look at Mark 14 this morning, we're going to look at how the characters um, in Mark's gospel respond to Jesus. And it gives us a picture of how we might embrace our Savior totally, thoroughly. All cards, all chips on the table, no reservations. We are embracing our Savior completely. We're going to look at the call to faithfulness in the midst of hostility. Then we're going to move to understand how we might embrace Jesus exhaustively rather than partially. We will be encouraged by Christ's own embrace of us rather than rejection. And finally, we will see the warning that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee our faithfulness. So let's read Mark 14, verses 1 through 11 together. I'm reading from the CSB translation. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. And while he was at Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. 
you always have the poor with you. And you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are humbled by the example of devotion that this woman who is not named in Mark's gospel shows us, and yet 2,000 years later, we remember what she did. God, as we look at her devotion up against the hostility of the scribes and chief priests and the betrayal of Judas, God, may we see ourselves. May we see ourselves in the ways and the subtle ways that we betray our Savior. And yet, may we see ourselves in the beautiful call to be faithful to the one who has embraced us completely. God, we love you. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the Christ that the scriptures point to. And we ask that you would bless our time, opening our ears to hear and our eyes to see the beauties of the gospel in Mark 14. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as you look at the structure of Mark's gospel, it reveals unthinkable devotion in the context of incredible, of, of incredible hostility. Jesus has been in Jerusalem for a few days now. He's condemned the temple and the leadership who are supposed to oversee worship to God there. He's called out the hypocrisy of Jerusalem's leaders and exposed that they're more like wicked Babylon than the set-apart people of God that were redeemed from Egypt and given the land of Canaan. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the disciples that hostility and uncertain circumstances cause us to rest on our certain devotion as we wait for Christ's return. Hostility and uncertain circumstances push us and cause us to depend on Christ. Think about that. Where do uncertain circumstances typically cause us to run? I don't have to give you a list of explanations because you've been running to those things throughout the uncertain circumstances of coronavirus, a global pandemic, unrest politically in our nation and the globe, people in, in, in positions of authority having screaming matches over the future of our country on TV for all to see. We are in absolute turmoil. And what you heard about is, as, as Eric read through and, and, and taught through Matthew 13 is two things. The first is this. Christ reigns through all of it. Amen? And, and, this is not the worst thing to happen to human society since people started walking the earth. And it won't be the last time that this happens. And Christ is still on the throne. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. All of his enemies are putting, being put under his feet, are being subjected to his authority and his rule so that when Christ cracks the sky and descends from on high in the same way he ascended, every knee will bow, including the president of the United States, every dictator that runs the earth right now, every person in their sin will bow and tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is what? Lord, king of the universe, to the glory of who? Us? No, God the Father. 
God the Father. And so Matthew 13 tells us, it promises us hostility. It promises us hostility. The structure of Mark's gospel is just going on. It's trending upward in hostility. It's trending upward in uncertainty. It's trending upward in doubt. The disciples themselves are divided. Judas, caving to the pressure, betrays his Savior. Watch out and be alert, Matthew 13 says, right? Watch out and be alert. Why? Because we can rest with certain devotion, certain allegiance on Christ and his return. And so the term oil that they are experiencing should be no surprise to them. But as you and I both know, even though we are promised turmoil, for some reason we are always surprised by it. We're always surprised by it. We're always taken off guard. The structure of Matthew's gospel helps us see that when we, rem- we remain faithful when the world is hostile to Jesus. As the gospel progresses, the hostility progresses. And it's leading somewhere. Where is it leading? It's leading toward the cross. After this, Jesus is going to undergo testing in the garden. He will be arrested. He will be put on trial and executed as a Roman insurrectionist between two criminals. He will be abandoned by his closest friends and all that they had hoped he would do would appear a loss. The disciples thought that Jesus was going to reign as king. He was going to usurp the authority of Rome. He was going to usurp the authority of the Jewish teachers. He was going to establish his authority over the temple by making himself a political ruler in the city of Jerusalem. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, he asserts his rule over the temple by dying on a cross and rising from the dead and and promising that the Spirit of God, the presence of God, would descend on the people of God as we become the temples of the living God on earth as he is in heaven. Amen? The disciples didn't see this. The follow Jesus experiment is seeming like a total failure. The characters, Judas Judas and and the Jewish Sanhedrin leaders, contrast the devotion of this woman. You see that Eric has talked about over and over again about the, the Markin sandwich, right? How, how Mark seems to, throughout his gospel, he will sandwich events and put different events, different vignettes of the life of Jesus together and make a sandwich. Well, here you see it. You see the bread is the two hostile figures. You have Judas and you have the Sanhedrin leaders, both expressing hostility and opposition against Jesus. One plans Jesus' death and arrest the other seeks to carry out Jesus' death and arrest. And sandwiched between those two things is this really, really odd picture of devotion that really just seems strange to you and I. Why is he doing this? Because hostility toward Jesus is becoming more and more common among the people. And the pressure to join in that hostility is great. So much so that as Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, what are the people crying? Hosanna, save us. Son of David, save us. And as they experienced that salvation in a way that they did not expect, another group of people cries out a few days later, crucify him, crucify him. Why the shift? Because hostility is growing. Faithfulness in hostility is hard, amen? We do not want to appear strange with the group or the majority, right? We want to conform to the group and the majority. There's this really, really funny 
video that uh, I got a kick out of. It circulated the internet a while ago where um, this, this group of psychologists actually staged a waiting room. And there was this beep that would sound off every, every few moments. And everybody in the waiting room was told when the beep happened that they needed to stand up. And so this lady comes into the waiting room to schedule an appointment, not knowing all of this had happened behind closed doors. And she's just chilling in the waiting room. And then all of a sudden she hears this beep and everybody in the waiting room stands up. And she's just kind of looking around. It's kind of awkward. This happens a few times. But after it happens a few times, you can guess what happened. What does she do? The beep goes off and what happens? She stands up. Well, then over and over again, she, she keeps standing. And then what the psychologists do is they start removing the control group away. So they start taking away all of the people that they told beforehand to stand up when the beep happens. All the way to the point where the woman is by herself. And guess what happens? The beep happens and what does she do? She stands by herself. Nobody's around to, 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 to help her see this. Well, then what happens is this. They start sending random people in who have no idea what's going on. And they're sitting in the waiting room. They schedule their appointment. And the woman first is the only one standing. Well, then some guy looks at her and goes, what are you doing? And she goes, well, everybody else was doing it. So I thought that's what we were supposed to do. And so the beep goes off again and, and he stands up. And then more people come in. All of a sudden, this woman has started a movement of people who are standing for a beep and they have absolutely no idea why. After the experiment, the woman was being interviewed and she said she didn't want to be excluded from the group, so she began doing what they were doing. Family, we must be willing to be excluded by the majority. We must be willing to remain faithful when the world is hostile, no matter the cost. It sounds like a silly thing to stand for a beep, but it is a much more weighty stand much more weighty thing to stand for the Christ who died to rescue us from all sin and all evil. And so when evil is pressing in on your life, be weird for the Savior. Amen? I know it's hard. I know it's hard to remain faithful when it seems like everything in life is pulling you toward other things. I know it's hard to step out in faith knowing, knowing for certain you will be rejected. But Christ is with you. He is with you. He has accepted you. And if King Jesus has accepted you and called you to his own, you don't need the validation of the world. If you actually believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you actually believe that Jesus Christ is King, why are you looking for validation in other people? Why are you so worried about what this person thinks? Why do you put so much security in being accepted by people when Christ himself has promised to accept you? We don't need validation of the group because we have Jesus. That's what it means for Christ to be Lord. It's not that he's just some casual savior that we hold on the side whenever it's convenient for us or when we need something. No, no, no. He affects and infiltrates our hearts to the degree that we do not seek validation, acceptance from anybody else, only from Christ alone. And that's hard. That hits me in the chest. Because I love, I love, the praises of men, right? Lord, help me not to proclaim the gospel this morning for your amen, but for the glory of Christ, right? It is so hard to open up the Bible and, 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 and articulate the gospel and not be tempted to get the praises of people. 
doesn't mean we, we, we don't proclaim the gospel. It means we, we actually get our hearts oriented with the, the true gospel, that Christ is Lord, not man, and that he has come for us, and that we can embrace him. How can Jesus tell us, how can Jesus tell us that he knows our affliction? Think about this. What did Jesus tell Peter after he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah? He says this, everyone who comes after me must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You guys talked about this. It's earlier in Mark's gospel. Peter confesses Jesus as Messiah, and Jesus is like, yeah, this is what it actually looks like to follow me. It looks like bearing a Roman execution rack on your back and going to death. I don't know about you, but that does not sound very appealing to me. And yet, what does Jesus say to the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2? He says this. He says, I know your affliction. I know it. He knows what they are going to suffer, and he tells them that the devil will throw them in jail. And then he says this. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. If we follow Jesus, these two pictures, he promises Peter a cross. He promises Smyrna glory. Which is it? If we follow Jesus, we know that there's a cross on our backs in the short term. But in the long term, we can see and rest on the promise that Christ guarantees to us a crown of life if we remain faithful to the point of death. If we press on to the end, if we finish the race, he will give us a crown of life. How can he tell us he knows this affliction, right? How can he guarantee blessing for those who press in and persevere? It's because he has suffered to the point of death. You see, we have a Savior who guarantees us glory if we suffer to the point of death. How can we know that we can trust that? Because he himself suffered to the point of death. He obeyed God to the point of suffering on the cross. He never relented to the temptation to run from the cross. Why do you think Gethsemane was so, such a, a burden for Christ? He was about to feel the entire wrath of, of God on sin. But if I was in Gethsemane, I would be tempted to run. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't run away from the cross. He ran toward the Father, knowing that the Father would carry him through the cross. Jesus was filled with, he had an anxiety attack, a panic attack in Gethsemane. Jesus, the king of the universe, was freaking out before his arrest. And he had confidence in his father. What did he say? He said, not my will, but your will be done. Amen? Even in the midst of emotional turmoil and unrest. It wasn't like Jesus was some superman who stoically just said, yep, I'm going to do this. No, no, no. He was having a panic attack. Sweating like drops of blood, the biblical authors tell us. And he could have ran, and he didn't. He did not lay down. He did not relent to the temptation to run from the cross, but he set his face, not to what was seen, but what was unseen, the glory that awaited him at the resurrection. Right? So much so that Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. 
He promises glory because all authority in heaven and on earth are his. He promises glory because he is seated in glory. Amen? These are the truths that we must pass down to our children. The next generation does not need a gospel that makes them feel better about themselves and tells them to live a good moral life and just behave and just get with the program. Our children need a gospel worth dying for. May we be found faithful to give it to them eagerly. And may we be found faithful to persevere so they can see that that gospel is worth dying for. We embrace thoroughly, not partially. As we look at verses 3 through 5, I want you to see the manner that this woman embraces Jesus. There are corresponding accounts to similar stories in Matthew 26 and John 12. And John actually rearranges this story. Um, he actually puts it in a different order than Matthew and Mark do. I, I would encourage you to read the difference in John's account and Matthew and Mark's account. And just wrestle with that yourself. I think that would be a great thing for you to study this week. Why would John put this story before Jesus goes into Jerusalem where Mark and Matthew put it after he goes into Jerusalem. What are they trying to do? What are they trying to communicate? We won't have time to get into that today. But Matthew 26 and John 12 help us fill in kind of some of the other details of what's going on in this account. But since we're in Mark, I really want to just spend time in Mark to see what Mark has to say about this situation because he's trying to say something. He's trying to tell something to us, and I want us to be attentive to it. And so I don't want to read the other biblical authors into Mark's account. I just want to take Mark's account at face value and see what he's got to say about Jesus here. So verses 3 through 5, it says, While he was still at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, so it gives us the setting, it kind of sets the stage, and it tells us that, that Jesus is reclining at table. Now, here, here's the thing. He's, he's simply laying down at a table. That's what he's doing. This is how they would have eaten. Um, oftentimes, they were laying down on their side as they're eating with their feet faced out away from the table. And so they're reclining at table and they're enjoying a meal. And oftentimes in a culture like this, the men would be reclining at table enjoying the meal and the, and the women would be around preparing it. And what happens in this passage is a woman kind of, she does something a little impolite. She, does, she, she breaks some social norms. She goes to the table where Jesus is. She takes a, a jar of, of nard, which would have been this really, really expensive perfume. Scholars believe that what was in this jar, this, this mixture of perfume, was really, really expensive and really, really full. So she breaks the jar because she's not going to save any of it for later. And she takes this jar, and what would have been about a half a year to a year's worth of wages, she dumps it on the head of Jesus. The woman's devotion to Christ was not hindered by her desire to respect social norms. I want, you to, I want you to hear this. She interrupted the meal to express her devotion to Jesus. What can we take away from that? Don't ignore devotion to Jesus for the sake of being polite and nice. Hey, buddy. Don't ignore devotion to Jesus or dismiss devotion to Jesus for the sake of being polite. How often do we miss opportunities to communicate the goodness of the gospel because we're more worried about being polite to those who are around us? We just don't want to be rude. We don't want to be rude. 
He's okay. He can come up here. I like him. How often have we, have we avoided sharing the gospel with somebody because we didn't want to offend them? What she's doing is very socially offensive. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Like, that's hard for me. It's hard for me to, 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 to see that, you know what? Sometimes it is okay for me to be impolite for the sake of the glory of the gospel. Which means challenging somebody with the decision they made. Right? Maybe pressing into them and, and, and trying to kind of draw out whether or not there's sin in their life somewhere. This is very impolite. Amen? Have you ever been corrected for your sin? It doesn't feel the best. Right? And yet I'm so thankful for the godly men and godly women, most of which is my wife, who is gentle enough to not be worried about being polite to me when she calls me on my junk. Right? Hey, buddy. This woman's devotion is not hindered by her desire to respect social norms, but her devotion is also full, right? Look, she's got, she broke the jar. She wasn't saving any of this for later. She didn't anoint Jesus with reservations. No, no, no. She broke this thing and poured it on him. She poured it on him. Six months to a year's worth of wages. Many people actually think that this was an inherited gift, Right, So this was maybe like a family heirloom or something that was really precious because this is really, really expensive stuff. She pours it on her Savior. Think about this. Contextually, that's like her taking her life savings and dumping it on Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. Many of us would be looking at that and saying, that's just irresponsible. That's not good stewardship. What are the disciples doing? They're doing the same thing. They're saying, we could have sold this money and given it to the poor. And Jesus is like, yeah, but you always have the poor. You won't always have me. And he shows the prophetic twist to what this woman is doing, that she's actually preparing him for his burial. Now, here's what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say that she knew that or didn't know that. So we're not going to try to assume whether or not she knew that or didn't know that. But what we do know is that Jesus said this to the group. She's preparing me for my burial. Hey, hey guys, I've, I've, I've told you this was coming. There's some perspective that this woman has that everybody else doesn't where she sees that it is totally okay to interrupt dinner, break open this jar of perfume, and dump it on Jesus. In fact, this jar of perfume was so valuable, it's a kingly gift. Who's she giving it to? She's giving it to her king. And check this out. This is really, really interesting. When you read the trajectory of Mark's gospel, he communicates the crucifixion as an enthronement ceremony. So what happens first? He's anointed. And then what happens? He goes before the chief priests who don't lift him up as king, but instead condemn him as king. And then there's a great procession. But where's the procession going? It's going to the cross. And he's lifted up, not on a throne, but on a Roman execution rack. He's given a robe. He's given a crown. There's a declaration over him that he's the king of the Jews. There's so much irony in Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion. He's, he's structuring it as an enthronement ceremony. What he's trying to show you is that the very means, the very means of Christ's suffering and death and the appearance of defeat there was actually the very means of the greatest victory that God could declare over all of creation. 
that sin itself had been defeated, that death itself no longer has its grip on creation, and all things are being, being made new in Christ. In fact, this is the first century. They didn't take showers every day, amen? Praise God that we can take showers every day. But many scholars actually believe that the aroma of this perfume would have stayed with Jesus through his temptation in the garden. As the chief priests send their, 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 their entourage to arrest him, he would have smelled like royalty. As, as Jesus is standing on trial being asked if he's the Messiah, the king of the Jews, he would have smelled like the king of the Jews. As Jesus is being whipped and beaten and standing before this, this artificial authority in Pilate, he would have smelled like the king. As he was being carried out and spit on by soldiers and, and robed and crowned, he would have smelled like a king. As he was hanging on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And rejecting painkillers in the process, which is what the wine mixed with gall was. It was a painkiller. He smelled like a king. The woman's devotion to Jesus actually reveals who she thought he was. The disciples criticize her for the gift, right? And the interesting thing is there's a lot of similar language between this gift here and the gift of two coins given just previously in Mark's gospel um, in, in chapter 12, right? You remember the story. It says, sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped, dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put into more, put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And then listen to how Mark gives language to this woman's gift. So some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? And then fast forward to verse six. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. That word noble is the same word used throughout the entire New Testament to describe the goodness of works. Every time you see Paul say good works, right? So Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. What created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. God has saved us, called us for good works to do good things, to bear fruit for the kingdom on earth. The goodness of those works is the noble nature of this woman's gift. She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you. You can do what is good for them whatever, whenever you want. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. She has done what she could. And the woman previously has done what she could in giving two tiny coins. How, what, what can we see here? We can see Jesus both honoring a kingly gift of surplus and a tiny gift of devotion. Both are expressions of their devotion to their, to their God. And so whether you have two coins or you have a keenly gift, we give. Amen? We give generously out of our means as God has provided for us to give. 
And Jesus honors both. Both. The gift coming from poverty and the gift coming from surplus. The devotion of this woman models, it's not conservative. She isn't sitting there wondering how she can gradually express her devotion and do it in a way that's appropriate and wise for her setting and the people around. She's all in. She's not hedged her bets. She's put all the chips on the table. Her allegiance belongs nowhere else. Embracing Christ fully means that in public, we are going to appear strange. It should not be a goal of ours in public to look like the world around us, right? We've, we've talked about this previously. Instead, we should embrace the fact that we are a peculiar people. Exiles and strangers in this world, we are salt and we are light, family. People should see this when they look to us. And as Peter reminds us in his letter, 1 Peter, we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Amen? My own heart has been really challenged by this woman's devotion. It's, it's been challenged because I pray harder when I want to preach a good sermon than I do when I just want to spend time with Jesus. Like, can we just be real enough with ourselves to admit the deficiencies in our own devotion to the Lord? For, for just a moment, how does this woman's full and abundant picture of devotion expose the incomplete nature of your own? In fact, I sympathize more with the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas than I do this woman because my devotion pales in comparison to hers. And yet I, I don't want you to miss something beautiful in verses 6 through 9. I do not want you to be led to shame at the own, your deficiencies in your devotion. I want to give you gospel medicine. I want you to see that the Savior who embraces you fully, even in your wandering, accepts you even when your devotion is deficient. Jesus stands to defend this woman to others who criticize her. Who are his disciples? I, I, Matthew puts that in a perspective for us. Mark leaves it unknown. He's like, a group of people expressed indignation. Well, Matthew's like, no, no, no. It was the disciples. That's who it was. He calls them out. It was the disciples. He stands to defend her to his disciples. He recognizes her faithfulness, and what does he do? He honors it publicly. How publicly has Jesus honored her faithfulness? 2,000 years later, we're remembering this woman. That prophecy is fulfilled in my preaching right now. That we're remembering this woman's devotion right now. Because Christ said, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so three gospel writers make sure to put this in their accounts of Jesus' life. Because Jesus himself said how important this is. Her faithfulness points toward Christ's own faithfulness. What does he say? She's prepared him for his burial. The most faithful example of his faithfulness that we have is his death and resurrection and his ascension. But it starts with his death, right? It starts with his death. Praise God that Jesus did not punish, reject, or cast off any of the scolding disciples. Because I think that would be me sitting there wondering why this woman wouldn't use this thing for the poor. Like, there's so much other good things that we could have done with this. Why are you, this is just not practical. It's just not practical. 
And Jesus is like, no, what she's done is noble. Why is it noble? Because she knows who it is she's pouring and anointing. Jesus is doing nothing but advocating for this woman in this text, right? Why is that helpful for us? Because it shows us that we have a God whose embrace of us is just as full and complete, if not more, than the abundant gift that was poured on Christ in this account of his life. Praise him that his faithfulness to us isn't motivated by our own faithfulness to him. Right? Like This should cause us to sing. I know we're not singing right now. We didn't sing this morning, but this should cause us to sing. Have you ever thought about this? Why do Christians sing? Why do we sing? Because we are a, yes, amen, to worship God. Because we are a victorious people. Victorious people sing. We sing because we know that we have a Savior who's one. We sing because we know even if our, in our suffering, our circumstances might change, He does not. He's still on the throne. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. And we sing. Who do we sing for? We sing for Him. Amen. But we also sing for each other. Because when you come in here discouraged and dejected and hear your brother or sister in Christ declaring the glories of Christ in your ear, it spurs you on. It spurs you on. And so can you sing so the person sitting next to you can be encouraged? The next time you sing, don't hide in the shadows. This is the one place where when we sing, we conform to the group, amen? So let's do it. We can pray for them, buddy. You're right. Christians are victorious people. We are a singing people. Don't be afraid to sing. Don't be afraid to yell out an amen when somebody says something that you resonate with. God has sent his son to us. God himself stepped into history in the person of Christ. And through the work of Christ, we are fully welcomed to Christ. Fully welcomed. And so what do we do? We come to Christ. We come to him in faith. We come to him in repentance. We come to him knowing that everything that we've chased before is absolutely worthless in compared to the glory that's revealed to us in him. And so we come to him enjoy that God would do such a thing as welcome us. You have an advocate when you are slandered for your devotion. Jesus stands to defend you. His spirit counsels you and helps you persevere through. Though Satan may have the first word in your condemnation, Christ Jesus has the last word in your vindication. So do not be ashamed to stand for the glory of the gospel. So often we can actually forget that Jesus himself enjoys forgiving tired and weak people who come to him. Think about that for a moment. The king of the universe enjoys forgiving you. He enjoys it. It brings him great joy and delight. There's nothing more pleasurable to Jesus than forgiving and cleansing you of your unrighteousness. How can I prove that? John 6.37 says this, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. I will never cast out. John Bunyan locks in on this passage 
shooting down pretty much every objection you and I could think of in coming to Christ. And he says this, but I'm a great sinner, you might say. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, you say. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I'm a, I'm a hard-hearted sinner, you say. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, you say. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against the light, you say, but, the, but no one who comes to me will I cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against mercy, you say. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, you say. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out, says Christ. There is no argument that you can give to Jesus to convince him to not receive you if you come to him in faith. Let me say that again. There is no argument that you can give Jesus to convince him not to receive you if you come to him in faith. He died and rose again, proving that he is the one we can go for rest and forgiveness. We're reminded in Judas's example, and I just want to say this warning and then, and then we'll close. Your proximity to Jesus does not guarantee your faithfulness to him. We should be very sobered by Judas's betrayal. He walked with Jesus, was closest with Jesus. He was a part of the inner circle. It wasn't like Jesus was reluctantly dragging Judas around because you know he had to betray him. Like That's not how this works. This was one of his best friends. He was in closest proximity to Jesus than you and I will ever be physically until he returns. And he betrayed him. Your physical presence in the Sunday morning gathering does not equal faithfulness to the one we worship together. Faithfulness to Jesus is certainly not less than active participation in a local church. I, I want you to hear what I'm, what I'm saying. Faithfulness to Jesus is not less than faithful participation in the local body of a church, right? The, the, the word of God commands that we would be involved in life together with one another. So faithfulness to Jesus isn't less than that, but it's, it's so much more than just being a warm body in a room or being involved with a group of people. Do not think that just because you have the right formula or elements or habits in your personal life or the life of your church that you're in a position to think that you're faithful. The question is this, church. Do you love him? Do you love him? Because what we see in this woman is her love for her Savior. Does your affection for the Lord overflow into benevolent generosity and kindness to one another? You see, that sounds like the local church. Not just warm bodies in a room, but those who are so filled with the affection of God that they overflow in benevolent, gracious love and affection to one another and to the world. And to the world. Does it give you a burden to make this news known to those who don't know it yet? 
to testify to the sweetness of the gospel. Is the lover of your soul worth suffering for? The scriptures are beckoning us this morning, amen? They're, they're beckoning us to embrace Christ completely. They're, they're beckoning us to see that, the, that in the midst of hostility and suffering, Christ is still worth embracing. He's worth of our, worthy of our entire lives, not just part of us. We can have confidence to rely on him because he embraces us fully as his people. And we're his precious possession, right? We're redeemed out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. But we need his spirit. We need his help. Because it's not enough to be present with the local church. It isn't enough to have faith practices if we do not have faithful affection and love for the one that all of our practices point to. So in response to our time together this morning, I just want to ask you a simple question. Talk about it with someone, somebody after service. Talk about it with somebody in your family. Talk about it with a friend. What tangible ways have you hedged your bets when it comes to Christ? Where have you been holding him at arm's length? Is it your attitude? Maybe it's the way you speak or, or speak to or treat other people. Maybe it's your leisure, your entertainment, how you spend your spare time, your thought life, your finances, your politics. Where have you been holding Christ at arm's length and trying to keep him out of? Lay it down, brothers and sisters. Lay it down. Sit at his feet. Embrace your king. What tangible ways have you seen your devotion to Jesus be half-hearted rather than full? And remember that his devotion to you is never half-hearted and always full. Let's pray. God, you are amazing. The gospel is sweet, sweet news that we need to proclaim to ourselves every single day. God, forgive me if I never preach the gospel to myself. Forgive me if I ever proclaim the gospel without allowing and, 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 and soaking in the, the goodness of your word. God, may the message of truth hit us before we communicate it to others. God, help us to be a people who love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Search us, God. Know us. See if there's any wicked way in us. Cleanse us and show us the everlasting way and help us as a church to stand for Christ in this hostile world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.